Chop Talk is brought to you by the Kosho School of Karate's premium martial arts training equipment. Frustrated with the low quality of the big manufacturers, the hassle and expense of custom-made equipment, or the months-long delivery times offered by the Japanese brands, if your order ever arrives at all, Kosho offers Makiwara, iron sandals, specialty punching bags, and other premium martial arts training equipment, all at great prices and great delivery times. Kosho equipment is guaranteed to be high quality and heavy duty, exactly what serious traditional martial artists demand. Contact the Kosho School of Karate for more information. Go to www.koshoequip.com or email koshoschoolofkarate at gmail.com. Kosho, premium martial arts training equipment for the serious martial artist. Welcome back to Chop Talk. I'm your host, Nate England. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing on Facebook, Twitter, or any of your social media networks. Please write a review and give us a five-star rating. Check out photos and links from this week's show on the Chop Talk Facebook page. And of course, share this podcast with everyone at your dojo. This week, longtime karate practitioner Don Sonny joins the show. Mr. Sonny started his karate career in 1964 training in Shotokan Karate in Gary, Pennsylvania, under Artis Simmons, who was one of the top karate competitors of the era. He then went on to train in Shuriru with James McLean at his Cleveland dojo. Don Sonny competed against and worked out with some of the top karate men of the time, including Dr. Mel Wise, Phil Keppel, Robert Trias, and was a close friend of the head of Masabayashi Shorinru, Takayoshi Nagamini. Now, everyone thinks of Nagamini as an Okinawan martial artist, of course, But he actually lived and had dojos right here in Ohio. Yes. Mr. Sonny also discusses what made the United States Karate Association such a unique and successful organization and shares his thoughts on the changes that karate has gone through during his career. Don Sonny's martial arts training led him to join the Ohio Highway Patrol and becoming the self-defense instructor for their academy. He was also selected for the Ranger Program, which was the predecessor of the SWAT team, and he had an extensive undercover career, working for the Highway Patrol, Secretary of State, and even the FBI. Now, we'll get into his fascinating law enforcement career in next week's episode, so make sure you check back in. Now, amazingly, his first undercover assignment was at the Kent State Riots, which, as I record this on May 4th, 2020, was exactly 50 years ago today. He also worked on cases and with people that were depicted in the 2011 film Kill the Irishman starring Ray Stevenson, Vincent D'Onofrio, Val Kilmer, and Christopher Walken, and also in the book To Kill the Irishman by Rick Perello. If you would like to know more about Don Sonny, you can contact him directly on Facebook, or you can reach out through the Chop Talk Facebook page, or send an email to choptalkwithnateengland at gmail.com, and I'll get you connected. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Hello. Mr. Sonny, it's Nate England. How are you doing? Good, Nate. How are you? Pretty good. Good. Still having fun in quarantine? Oh, yeah. It's a blast. I'll tell you the one thing I am doing. I'm getting to watch a lot of entertainers that I normally would spend a ton on. (laughs) And and they're all doing these free broadcasts now through this on Facebook and stuff. And uh, I've seen some of my favorites. Oh, nice. Who are you watching? Well, I was just watching Todd Snyder right now. 
he's a singer down in Nashville. Oh, okay. And, uh, he doesn't get radio time, you know, so uh, he's not a radio-type guy. He's more of a folk singer, but uh, he is funny. <laughs> he is a comedian at All times. Right. He tells a lot of stories in his concerts and things like that. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I know everyone's trying to figure out what to do with the, uh, you know, we're doing online classes at the karate school right. now, and the concerts are all online, and it's just everyone's making an adjustment. Right. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, I'm getting to watch a lot of people that uh, I don't get to see very often, and I appreciate that, I'll tell you. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I, I appreciate you taking the time to to do the interview today um you know we, we talked by phone earlier this week and I, I didn't know that much about your backstory before you know we'd been to the a few of the same seminars and workouts but we we hadn't talked in depth and then i was mm-hmm. just really interested in everything you were you were talking about uh when we were uh when we talked by phone earlier this week and i think uh, hopefully the, right. the the chop talk listeners are going to be interested too in fact i know they will be um could you start off by by telling us how you got started in the martial arts? Sure, sure. I was uh, about 16 years old, 15, 16, and I used to go to a, a YMCA in my hometown, Erie, Pennsylvania. And I went there to play basketball. They would have uh, pickup games to a certain score, and you'd form a team, and the winner would stay on the court, and then the loser uh, would leave, and one of the other teams where they would take turns going on and playing. Mm. Uh, they were probably 15-minute games, you know, because you played them 21 points or something. Right. And uh, when I was off the court, there was a room next to the gymnasium, and I discovered that there was a group in there doing uh, doing karate, and mm. it was led by uh, Sensei Artis Simmons. So I would always head in there for 10, 15 minutes to watch these guys. I was somewhat fascinated. And, uh, one of the funny things is when I first started watching them, I actually thought they were doing judo, I guess, because I had heard about judo. Right. <laughs> and I probably saw someone in a judo gi at some point. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was some form of judo. But, you know, later uh, learned that it was karate. And uh, it was, you know, in the early 60s, so... There wasn't a lot of karate to see or even read about you know, right. print at that time. But I was fascinated, and eventually uh, one of the students approached me and said, you know, you keep coming in, are you interested? And, and they, uh, I said yes, and they, they told me to like, come back next week, and the sensei would talk to me. Okay. And he did, and he did, and he made me order a D first. He told me where to order it from. And I had to have a key to go on the floor, but I sent uh, Costello. It was a a non-bleached, kind of a yellowish-white thing. <laughs> okay. Uh, rough yeah. cotton. But uh, I sent and got one, and I started my training. Oh, very cool. And what was that early training like? Well, we did we did a lot of calisthenics, a lot of basics. It was it was Shotokan karate, mm-hmm. and uh, so you know we would drill back and forth across the floor for a long time, and uh, Mr. Simmons was uh, 
very much into the early karate competition. He was a very well-known competitor nationally. Mm-hmm. And uh, there weren't a whole lot of tournaments, but the big ones he would normally be at and participate and oftentimes win. But uh, so we also did a lot of sparring every week. You know, it was no pads, uh, somewhat somewhat controlled. You hit hard to the body, and you weren't supposed to hit somebody in the head, you know, hard. Right. But, uh, yeah, but it was, you know, just bare-knuckled, and, you know, and you did a lot of that and prepared. And then, of course, he started taking students with him to the tournaments all the time. And mm-hmm. uh, that that was kind of our primary focus at that point. The, the competition. Uh, competition, yeah. And we had, we didn't have a full selection of kata, but I remember we had Pinon Shodan and Pinon Yodan, I think Nehanshi Show, I mean, and, and several other forms. Uh and including some advanced forms that he had picked up along the way. Right. So it, our school also did the, the kata competitions and the sparring. And, uh, you know, the karate just kept advancing at that point and then becoming more solidified as a, as the Shotokan style. And, right. Uh, he, would, he would travel to pick up things and bring them back and... You know, so we oftentimes were learning a new kata or something that he picked up from some well-known sensei. Now, I, I have to ask you, so you said you were training in Shotokan. Um, that early, yes. were all the styles that different, differentiated where, uh, you know, there was a, a Shotokan group and a Shoreru group and a Goju-ru group, or, or was there some mixing going on in the training and the katas? Well, I I don't even remember him referring to the style that frequently, and uh, I'm I'll tell you where I come to, to know that we were doing Shotokan is eventually I bought a book and it was uh, I can't remember the title of it. It's probably here in the room somewhere, but it was by Nishiyama and Brown. And it was a early karate book. And looking at it, I realized, you know, this is exactly what we do. Mm. And uh, and I probably became more familiar with uh, that that we were doing Shotokan karate through that book than I did through my sensei at the time. Oh, interesting. We just called it karate. You know, right? We were doing, yeah. Now, where yeah. did he live? But, but or, there was. Where did he learn? Was he a, a military guy, or did he? Because it, it, even when yep. you were starting in 64, there, there weren't that many dojos in the United States. But was he overseas or or what? Yes, he learned, learned while he was in the military and came back, you know, with what he had picked up. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, he, like I said, he was very interested in the competition and very good at it. He was definitely known for his, uh, his reverse punch, mm. which was unstoppable. I mean, he used to drill in some unusual ways, and uh, but he he you know found those competitions back then, 
June Ree had a big tournament in D.C. Ed Parker had one out in California. Alan Steen had one in Texas. Um, the, the USKA under Mr. Trias had several tournaments a year, their Grand Nationals being the big one. Hmm. You know, so we were always at those things. And he was a USKA member, United States Karate Association. Hmm. You know, it's, it seemed like in the in the, the 60s and 70s and maybe into the early 80s was really the heyday of competition when everybody would, that's the focus. Everybody would go to the competitions and the, I mean, I've seen photos where there's thousands of people in, in the crowds and all the top karate people are going there. And oh, yeah. that's just not what you see today where it's split up into all these different groups and okay, there's a, there's a a national seminar, but it's in a high school gym and there's a few dozen people in the crowd. You know, it it was just a different, it seems like it was a different atmosphere or the tournaments were different then than they were now. They were huge and you did get the, the, the top competitors were there. I mean, you know, I remember, you know, meeting Joe Lewis, you know, and Bill Wallace and, you know, that uh, Chuck Norris as a competitor. You know, mm, right. during those times. And, uh, you know, you got to meet these guys. I even got to meet Bruce Lee one time. He wasn't competing, but uh, I was in Washington, D.C. at Joan Reese, Joan Reese tournament and uh, sitting with Mr. Simmons eating lunch. And he actually walked over our table and introduced himself and said he wanted to meet Mr. Simmons. Wow. So I even got to meet Bruce Lee at one period. That's very cool. You know, I'm going to be doing um, sort of a Bruce Lee episode in the next next few weeks. So I'm I, I'm curious about that. Did you get to see him work out? What were your impressions of him uh, personally, or as as far as training compared to everybody else that you were training with at that time? Well, you got the my knowledge of that probably came from Black Belt Magazine at that time. Mm. Our meeting in Washington, D.C. was, uh, like I said, it was in a cafeteria. He came over, introduced himself, sat for five minutes, and, and wandered off. Uh, right. and, uh, but, and went to meet some other people. So I, I didn't see any training there. I never okay. trained with him in any manner. But, you know, he, he was getting a lot of publicity. The, there were, I think, two karate magazines at that time. There was Black Belt. And then there was Karate Illustrated. Mm-hmm. And I believe they were both California publications. And uh, so the people from California got a lot of coverage. Right. And sometimes I think it's a shame that there were a lot of competitors in Karate on the East Coast that very seldom got any coverage unless they won one of the big tournaments or something. Right. And then it was just about that tournament where about... The West Coast, they would spend considerable amount of time showing them and talking about their training methods and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back then, like I said, even with Sensei Simmons, he would travel around picking up what he could. And a lot of it, you know, I realized nowadays it was from totally different styles and we would incorporate it. So I was interested in seeing what other people were doing and trying to emulate them, you know, and uh, right. yeah, trying to develop my uh, Joe Lewis psychic. Yeah. Know, that nature. <laughs> yeah. 
now, um, so this was this was in the '60s, and um, your your instructor, Artis Simmons, was black. You're not. Um, the '60s right. was kind of a uh, could be a difficult time for race relations. Was there ever? Did he shy away from having a white student? Was there ever any issues in the in the dojo or while you guys were traveling around in tournaments? No. None whatsoever. Mm. Uh, Mr. Simmons had, you know, uh, we had a mixture of students, probably mostly white when I think of it. You know, we had several black kids, too. Uh, I remember Billy Blanks coming to our dojo. I don't think he ever became a regular member, but he would come in. He was from the same town. Oh, really? But, uh, yeah, yeah. He was just like a little kid to me back then. He'd sure. come in with this other young student we had named Ray Brothers. They would come in together. and uh, But, you know, it's, uh, it's... So anyway, though, no, I never felt any racial tensions or anything whatsoever. Good. Um, yeah, it's, that, that was absent from our dojo, thank goodness, and, Probably more unusual than black and white. Mr. Simmons also taught women, you know, which a lot of the real early dojos, I don't think, did that. And some people found unusual. And uh, But we had several good female students at the dojo. Well, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. But uh, it sounded like he was willing to, to take on anybody that was going to be a good student. Yeah. Karate was different back then. Um uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, I think today a lot of it is centered around what I would call children's programs. We do a lot of little dragons. And that seems to be what supports the dojo. Right. Back then it was, you know, I think we had to be 16 or 15 years of age to join the dojo. And, you know, it was really centered around pretty hard competition. Right. And developing developing good fighting skills and stuff mm. and uh and self-defense there was a considerable amount of self-defense training too right this is mike tarvin of tarvin plumbing company you may have heard me answering questions as a plumbing expert on the gary sullivan show over the years i'm here today to make you aware of our company we perform plumbing repairs of all types we've been in business since 1907 through five generations of family members that's 109 years of providing top quality workmanship and outstanding service if you're having issues with leaks, stoppages, water heaters, fixtures, or piping, we're here to help. Spring rains may be taking a toll on your sump pump. To help out, ask us about our summer sump pump special. We can inspect the existing pump and replace it if necessary for a special summer price. We can also inspect or add a battery backup and other devices for extra security to keep you high and dry. We offer you peace of mind for your plumbing system with reliable, trustworthy service backed by years of experience. Tarvin Plumbing is a Cincinnati company with an appreciation of the wide range of plumbing challenges this city offers. So if you or someone you know has a need for plumbing repairs of any type, please think of us at Tarvin Plumbing. You can reach us at tarvinplumbing.com. That's tarvinplumbing.com. Thank you. What was your next stop after uh, working out with Mr. Simmons? Well, in 1969, late in the year, I moved to Ohio for a job. And uh, after uh, after I had established myself there, I uh, I wanted to start training. So I lived in central Ohio, just outside of Columbus. And 
I kept visiting dojos, and that would have probably been an early 70s, and just didn't find anything really to my liking. But I knew an instructor in Cleveland, Ohio, that I had met on the tournament trail that I really had a lot of respect for. Mm. And uh, I ended up, I don't know if I contacted him first by phone or just showed up at the dojo. But I started uh, attending uh, Mr. Jim McLean's dojo. Oh, okay. East 185th Street in in, uh, Cleveland. I drive up there once or twice a week to train with him. Oftentimes stay overnight with him at his home. And we would train again in the morning or at 2 a.m. or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah. And, and, uh. You know, and I trained there for several years too in the Shorey Roo style. Okay. Now we've had I've had Jim McLean on the show uh, a couple of times actually. I'll um, uh, maybe I'll put a link in the show notes to some of the old episodes if anyone mm-hmm. wants to listen to uh, to those. Now Jim McLean was an interesting guy. I mean, he was basically on his own since he was a little kid, and he wound up kind of finding the dojo and was actually living there when he was like a 14 or 15 year old kid, like sleeping on a picnic table in the, in the basement of uh, right. the, the dojo in uh, Peoria. Right. He, he trained with Mr. Keppel there. And, uh, you know, that's where he built his foundation at. And he, he was a very interesting person. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people, were, um, let's say, a little apprehensive around him because he was very straightforward. He would <laughs> tell you what he was thinking. Right, know? yes. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think I was one of the fortunate ones. He always, uh, he was always a gentleman to me. He just stayed at my home. And, you know, he was just, and he was a great teacher. Um, you know, he loved to really work his stuff. He it wasn't, I'll show you, and you can walk through it slowly. I mean, you had to know how to tap out quickly, or you could end up unconscious. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, once he locked in, you better hit him fast. Because, you know, he's applying, and he expected the same out of you when you put it on him. Right. So, Yeah. And it's interesting you said that you Definitely. would you would work out at at, at two a.m. I heard stories from a few of his other students where he would he would surprise him in the middle of the night. I don't know. They was um, I think he yeah. was in Michigan. There was a, I think he had an apartment above the dojo that he rented out, and he would wake the guys up, the students in the apartment in the middle of the night, and they they had to work out just at, at all hours. Yeah. You had to be ready at all times. Right, right, yeah. I'm, I mean, I remember him waking me up and. You know, you're groggy and you can hardly see and you're staggering a little bit. You don't have your bounce yet. And he's going, throw a punch at me. <laughs> you know, I go, yes, and say, you know, you know, step in and throw, throw it hard. You know, and he would block it and do something. And you'd end up on the floor and, you know, he, uh, he, he would do that type of thing to you. It was one of the. Now I look back on it, it was one of the true pleasures of training with him. Right. I'll, I'll tell you a real quick story. That sure. I, I still, to this day, find funny. He had a pool table in his home, uh, pocket billiards, and uh, 
I had shot a lot of pool, and I back then I sort of prided myself as a good pool player. And one night, it's late, we're shooting, and um, we're playing eight ball. And I think about my second turn, I ran the table, everything but the eight ball, but I shot perfect position on it. I had about a one-foot shot to put it in the side pocket. Hmm. And right before I take the shot, he starts asking me about something I had said or did in the dojo earlier that night. And we end up in this big discussion, and then sort of a workout (laughs) on what we were doing. And I, I keep looking over at this eight ball because I'm going to get to beat Sensei McLean here. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we get done working, and I said, you want to finish the game? He went, no. <laughs> I'm going to bed. No way he went. And uh, I remember when I woke up the next morning, there were no balls on the table. <laughs> so at some point, I cleaned the table. <laughs> so... So uh, I, I never got to beat him at a damn thing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Sounds like a real com- competitive guy. Now, you, you skipped over something, which is you were living in central Ohio, and his right. dojo was in Cleveland. And for those of you who yeah. aren't in the Midwest, that's not a short drive. It was like 125 miles from my home to his dojo. <laughs> so crazy. So, you know, I, I would even try to arrange my work schedule so I could get there frequently and uh, get there at the classes I wanted to be at. And, uh, but yeah, that's what I grew up to train back in those days, 125 miles one way. And like I said, oftentimes we'd end up sleeping over at his place and then yeah. driving back the next morning. I mean, you have you have me beat. I used to drive 90 miles uh, one way to teach. I had a. I was living in Peoria, Illinois, and I had a a club in Champaign, Illinois, with the university. And so I'd drive down a couple, couple days a week to teach them. But that's ninety miles. You're right. you're driving one hundred and twenty plus. That's, you know, two hours each way. You know, multiple times right. a week. Times a week. I mean, I I think people don't understand now you drive down the road and every strip center has a Taekwondo or karate school in it. But to find a good one. You had to go out of your way. It was dedication. Oh, yes. Yeah, you had to. And I will say this. It was worth every minute I spent driving back and forth. It was worth that trip up there Hmm. Uh, to be part of that dojo and then to be able to say I trained with him for several years. Right. Now, you got down to Miami at some point and were working out with – Dr. Mel Wise, can you can you tell us about that? Sure, Mr. McLean and Dr. Wise were very good friends, and uh, they had worked a lot of stuff together. I think over the years, well, we we started to work uh, one of the advanced potters out of the out of the uh, Shuriru system, and Mr. McLean, and while we were working, kept telling me that. Mr. Wise also performed this kata. Well, I had seen Mr. Wise perform kata, and it was always goju kata, but mm. it was it was something to behold. I remember watching him perform in a tournament and realized I had it breathed while he was doing his kata. <laughs> the power, the bounce, the focus was all there 110%. Mm. 
and he always won in Prada. But, uh, you know, that's what I heard. I I heard that when he went to a tournament, it was just everybody knew he was going to get first place. It was just the way that he performed as Kata. And I think maybe Sion Chin is the one that he was maybe best well known for. It's just everybody right. knew. It's like, okay, he has first place, and the rest of us are are going to be going for second. I watched him compete. He he died of leukemia. Yeah. He had several operations before he passed away. I watched him compete when he was actually very sick mm. and had a hard time even getting into the tournament walking around. And he competed... At, it was, I think it was a USK Nationals in Anderson, Indiana, and he won. Wow. <laughs> he took first place. He, wow. Mr. Uh, Robert Bowles took second. Wow. So, so you know, it, it was amazing. He was an amazing practitioner. But uh, anyway, yeah, we're, we're training that night, and he starts talking about that Mr. Wise knows this form, and... Uh, and he starts telling me, you should go down and train with him. Well, we're in Cleveland, Ohio. Mr. Wise's dojo is in Miami. <laughs> so all of a sudden he goes, let's take a break and come on. And we go and sit in the little office of this dojo. He places a phone call and he has Mr. Wise on the phone. I'm just sitting there and he starts telling him, I'm sending this guy down <laughs> to, to work this kata with you. Wow. And they're talking. I remember I'm sitting there thinking, how the hell do I get to Miami? Right. You know, it's, it's a long ways off. Right. But over the next few weeks, I figured out a way to do that. And uh, and uh, took my first airplane flight ever and flew to Miami to train with Mr. Wise for a few days. And what was the training like so, when, once you got down there? I mean, did he, you guys well, went over that kata, Gopai, oh, was it Gopai yeah. show, I think? Yeah, the Gopai show. Uh, I'm almost positive that's the one we worked down there. But uh, that uh, it worked out real funny. I think my flight got in late, but I decided to head out to his dojo. I was just, I had to get there and take a look at it, hoping there would still be classes going on at 7.30 at night. So I... I don't know if I took a bus or a taxi or something, but I got out to his dojo. And uh, there were a few people in working out. And I walked in, told one of the students who I was, and he told me that they had just finished their last class a little while ago. Mm. And he said, Mr. Wise is in his office. Let me tell him you're here. I remember I walked into the office, and Mr. Wise was all dressed up. I mean, he he looked like he was ready to go out. Mm. And uh, I explained to him that I didn't come to do something tonight. I just came out this way because I arrived a little while ago. And, you know, maybe we can make arrangements when we can train. Right. And he explained to me that he had something important to do and he had to go somewhere. And we're sitting there talking. And the next thing, he's uh, stripping down and putting his gi on. And we're out on the floor. And I remember that night we trained at 4 a.m. <laughs> and the next next afternoon we met, trained privately for several hours before his classes. Wow. And uh, and I think I got to train with him maybe two more sessions while I was there. And, uh, and we had a lot of fun. And I remember in 
even working a lot of self-defense stuff also at that right. point, you know. And, uh, so well, so uh, we well, worked at the Dakota, and we worked a lot of self-defense uh, basically on each other, you know. Mm-hmm. You'd step in and do this, grab me like that, whatever, and you'd execute a, a defensive maneuver, and then you would take turns at it, or he would show you how he approached that situation. Yeah. Well, it's and amazing it really that he nice. would that he would take that amount of time. Here he is, he's done with classes in the in the evening, and some guy he doesn't even really know walks into his dojo, and but he's going to work out until 4 a.m. teaching him in the next couple of days, too. I mean, that's, that's a lot of dedication on your part to figure out how the hell you're going to get down to Miami from Ohio, but also from his to, to be willing to spend that much time on, on – uh, somebody from out of town well i don't know if it was a lot of dedication on my part if you if you love the art and had the chance to go down there and work with them you had to do it i mean you just right that was an opportunity of a lifetime and i fully felt that and uh i think it's a testament to the friendship that him and mr mclean shared for sure Mm. and uh you know that Mr. McLean could call him and say, this is going to happen. And then he puts out like that, you know, right. it's just unbelievable right. that we had that time together down there and, uh, you know, that he welcomed me that way. And from that point on, I felt we were good friends. We would see each other at tournaments and spend time together and talking and, you know, and, uh, listen to him and Mr. McLean tell stories about, their early adventures when they were trying to pick up stuff that right. I mean they would hitchhike across the country to learn a kata. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, in uh yeah, the, they, the, the in Mr. Mc, the interview I did with Mr. McLean, I mean that's what he talked about. He hitchhiked from Illinois to Phoenix to learn Kanku show. I mean you, you, you know you hitchhike. I mean think about doing that today, you know, who would do that right. because of the, the the dangers the effort the every everything it's it's mm-hmm. nuts to think about that but that's how karate was spread yeah. during the during those days it's a, it's a three-day ride you know i mean if you're riding 10 15 hours a day it's three days to get there and you're hitchhiking you know right i i know the weather couldn't cooperate all the way right <laughs> but uh but yeah they uh, they used to tell stories about stuff like that, and, you know, and uh, they'd be joined by other people that you knew and admire. I remember Mr. Keeney talking with them and things of that nature. It was just, you know, you'd sit there with your jaw down, like you're really seeing the development of karate in, in the United States through these people. Right. Now, you ran into uh, another pretty well-known karate guy uh i think takayoshi nagamini so uh shoshin nagamini's son who was living in the u.s and i think he had a dojo in cincinnati for a while if not a couple other places right right yeah he had a dojo down cincinnati i was down there and probably had worked out at the Aidwa dojo that you know, there was a lot of talk about him being there because of who his father was, mostly. Right. His father was the head, world head of Matsubayashi, and basically the founder. Uh, very well-known style that a lot of American servicemen had 
been trained in to some extent. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to meet him. So I, I went over to his dojo and just walked in and uh, introduced myself. And uh, he, uh, well, after talking for a little bit, he started asking me about kata. And it sort of became apparent that he was going to test me in some way. Mm. And he was asking me what katas I knew. I finally named one that I uh, caught a called No High that I had learned from Victor Moore, mm. and and uh, who was also a pretty well known karate guy and still is. Yeah, and and he, there's another but, uh, guy that uh, we've had on the show. Uh, so yeah, people can check, can, can listen to Vic Moore tell about his story. Yes, had a interesting, very interesting uh, karate career. Right. So. Anyway, you know, I knew this kata, and, and later in life, you know, just realized that it was uh, adapted from uh, a kata from Mr. Nogamini's style called Rohai. <laughs> Mr. Moore called it Nohai, and it, it was very similar, mm. but uh, quite a bit different. So I performed the kata, and I can remember that there was Mr. Nogamini there and one of his senior instructors with him. And, I don't think they were very impressed with my kata. <laughs> of course, I was doing it in blue jeans, <laughs> you know, right. civilian okay. clothes. Yeah, I don't even know if I took my sneakers off. But uh, I remember walking out feeling a little bit like, you know, like, you know, I can't believe he did that to me. I'm not in a gi. I didn't dress up. You know, I, I didn't have a chance to do the kata, but one yeah. time. Right. You know, Yeah. Okay, Dukata, you know, you walk through it and try to put a little power into it, and then he seemed like he didn't think my kata was very good. Hmm. So anyway, I I didn't talk to him again for a long time. I didn't go back to his dojo or anything like that, and uh, and later I found out he was training right here in Columbus, Ohio, Hmm. and that he had a small dojo here. He was living here. One of his students had brought him here. So one night I walked into the dojo. At that point, I was training with uh, Philip Keppel out of Peoria, hmm. Mr. McLean's teacher. Sure. And, uh, you know, I told him I was a student of Mr. Keppel. He had a, a strong admiration for Mr. Keppel. And so we got talking. He asked me to wait around till after class. And uh, we went out and had a couple beers and sat around and talked about karate and basically about my background, and he was telling me about his, but we really hit it off and built a very strong friendship, and we ended up seeing each other four or five times a week, probably, and uh, I worked out with him occasionally, but uh, we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time eating at his home. He was a trained chef, and uh, yeah, he would cook you know, traditional Japanese dishes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and he would, he would call me frequently and tell me to be there for dinner. And, uh, you'd go over and he would serve you dinner. And, uh, you know, we spent time just running around together. We did a lot of seminars together. Uh, I tried to uh, help him book seminars. Okay. And, uh, you know, so those things we would travel to together, and I'd always work out under his direction at those. Right. Um, yeah, most of them were, I'd say, non-style-specific seminars, because the schools we would go to, 
were not Matsubayashi. So, mm-hmm. but he 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 was good. He could train, and he he trained like a crazy man. Oh, really? You know, it's uh, there there were times I would just stop at his house. You know, we became good enough friends. You didn't have to call in advance or anything, and mm-hmm. you would just be in the area and pull in and just say what's up. You know, and right. I, I remember several times getting there. And he would be in ghee and soaking wet. And uh, he'd go, you know, Soaky, what are you doing? And he'd say, Ducata. And I'd say, really? He had a room in his house, an extra bedroom that had nothing in it. Mm-hmm. That became his little home dojo. Okay. And uh, I remember one time he told me I work in Kusanku. And I said, oh, I do that kata. I said, how many times are you going to do it? It's a long kata. Yeah. And it. It's got a lot of, I mean, it has a lot of strenuous movements in it. It's not real subtle. It's no. performance. And uh, he'd say, I, I do 100 times. I <laughs> <laughs> do Kusanku 100 times? Yes, almost done. Wait. <laughs> oh, wow. You know, and he, he, would, he would finish doing his 100 katas, you know, and I'm going like, you know, here here's a guy. At this time, he's a tenth don. He's the head of the system. Right. And uh, he's still going in there to do a kata a hundred times, and then going to the dojo that night to teach. Wow. You know, it's yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> so, but you know, I really appreciate the friendship I had with him for all that time, and. Uh, it was, uh, we had a lot of fun together and, uh, you know, just uh, a lot of good times traveling sure. around and doing things together, so. Sure, sure. Anyway, those were great times. He used to tell me at times, you know, I'd say, what should I call you? Or he would tell me, yeah, you don't have to call me Soki or Sensei. And mm-hmm. I'd say, what would you want me to call you? He'd say, you can call me Taco. And I'd go, <laughs> no. Way, <laughs> no way! I can't do that. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, he would tell me, "Call me Taco." <laughs> and uh, now, he loved karaoke too. We, we did. We went out to do karaoke. He went out to do karaoke. I went to watch. Yeah. And uh, he did a version of "Green Green Grass" or something. I forget. There was an old Elvis song that. He would get up and do, and the people just loved it. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, karaoke is a big thing in in Okinawa in Japan. Now, how did he adjust to the climate? Because I know he was in Cincinnati for a while, and then sounded like Columbus. And I don't know if you lived anywhere else in the Midwest, but the Midwestern climate is not the same as Okinawa. Was he, was he able to survive the winters? I mean, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Uh, he did. He survived them, you know, and I don't remember, I don't think in the time we were hanging together, we had well, a brutal one, We but the winters are cold here, and uh, right. you always have that one week that it's right around zero, but, you know, he did survive that. Right. I don't remember him ever uh, altering his activities because of weather, so okay. I would say he did well with that. All right, all right, good. Looking for a way to gain an edge on the competition? Want to give your body some much-needed relief and relaxation? Try Medical Resort ATAC, Okinawa specialists in sports therapy and wellness care. 
ATAC offers customizable massage therapy. Try their Oxygen Chamber to increase metabolism, reduce fatigue, and promote faster recovery from injuries. Take their stretching course to increase flexibility and release muscle fatigue. ATAC also offers special courses in static and thermal therapy, foot therapy, and head therapy. Or try a session of ATAC's latest offering, acupuncture therapy, with their fully licensed acupuncture therapist. Want to find out more? ATAC is open Monday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. Stop into their center located at 1 2830 Oroku in Naha City, Okinawa. Call 098-859-1890 or visit them on the web at www.a-tac.net. That's www.a-tac.net. Staff is fluent in English, Portuguese, Spanish, and Japanese. You were, I mean, you were involved in the USKA during the height, the sort of the height of its, I don't want to say popularity, but at one point in the, in the 70s or 80s, this was the largest karate organization in the world, in the world. It was bigger than, than any, anything else. And you were there during that. And an interesting thing about the USKA is, unlike now where a lot of organizations are are divided by style, um, the USKA had everybody included in it. Um, yes. Yes. And I, I don't exactly know what, what my question is. I, I guess I just I'm I'm curious about the the difference then compared to what. Kind of all the organizations have evolved to now. You know, I think you know. Of course, USK was uh, Master Trias's organization. He was uh, he was the founder. He was everything to that organization. Right. I think back then there were a couple things that made it so successful. One was that people wanted recognition, wanted, um, oh, what would be the word, uh, validity. And by joining that organization, you now had someone that was your grandmaster. Mm. Even if you weren't the same style, which in some ways doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. But what Mr. Trees would do, if you joined and if you were a style that was new to the organization, he would appoint you as the style head. Now, he would have you draw up qualifications for different ranks and things of that nature, and you had to submit them, and they had to be okayed. Right. But that allowed you to, the initial people, sort of be in top dogs. Okay. At the USAA, even though they weren't the same style as Master Trias, mm-hmm. because there wasn't a lot of old grandmasters in the states, I think a lot of people took advantage of that just to be legitimate in a way. Okay. You know, it's you know you're going to question my rank. I I got my certificates from the USKA. They're right here. They're signed by Master Trias, and I mean. I remember looking at my certificates, some of the people they were signed by now, that to me it's incredible, you know, that sure. I, I got paid second dawn or third dawn and Heidi Ochai and a lot of really well-known masters were 
we're signing on the line down there along with Master Trias. Right. So, you know, I think that had a part to do with it. It gave people legitimate, legitimate, I can't say the word right now, it legitimized people okay. that didn't have another avenue to do that. But there was a charisma, too, about someone like Mr. Trias that he was able to gather all these people. Mm. And uh, that they didn't feel a need to be totally independent and stuff. And uh, and like you said, everybody was a member. I, I, I remember hearing, I don't know if there's any truth of this whatsoever, but at one point worldwide, there was like over 300,000 people that were members. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you I mean, know, that, that's, and, uh, that's what I've heard that. I mean, yeah, how do you confirm it? But I've, I've heard similar numbers yeah. as well, yeah. Right, yeah. You know, it's like, this is crazy, you know, that he's able to build this thing and all these people join in. That sure made for great competitions. He had, you know, a few tournaments a year. And, you know, it, it just made for the best competitors were there. Almost all of them were members. Right. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, you know, he built one heck of an organization where today it just seems to me anyway to be much more divided and uh, people are more inclined to just study their style and maybe even look down when you say you're from something else. You know, everybody believes theirs is the best. Sure. You know. Well, yeah, that, their master is the best ever, and he's the only one that can give them any knowledge. Right. Well, that's so an interesting attitude because a lot of people they have they have that attitude where theirs is the best, but they've never worked out with anybody else. They've never they never went out like you guys did, and were training at other dojos and competing against other guys that were from these dozens of different styles. Right. Right. I think it's a, a sign of the times, though, Nate. Back when you know, when I was traveling around, uh, you know, Mister Wise's dojo, Mister McLean's dojo, um, Heidi Ochai's dojo, uh, Glenn Keeney's dojo. I went there numerous times to train. You know, this is all we had back then. You didn't have a big organization with just your style and some guy telling you that. He was the only one. Right. And uh, because we were all USK, that might be one of the reasons we accepted each other. Mm-hmm. Even though we weren't the same styles, it was great that you're here. Come on in and train. So, you know, and I used to go and just get in line and do whatever they were doing. You know, probably so, half the time looking a little awkward because I didn't know their style. They might right. have a different method of stepping or whatever. Right. You know? So. But you, but, fi- but you figure you were in. there, and you figured it out, and you worked out, and you did what they did for that that night. or that. You did what they did, and you didn't tell them that you had a better way. You realized that they were training under their instructor, and I respect you. You surely didn't try to uh, you know, say that you had a better way. You ought to look at this. You just trained with them. Sure. Did, uh, did their stuff as best as you could. And you know, and then usually went and had a beer. You know, but yeah. that was that was the way it worked in those days. You know, I mean, I'm 
Bob Bowles. I went up to his dojo several times. Uh, you know, I had uh, you just, but I think it was the sign of the times too, and and probably had a lot to do with the USKA because almost everybody I mentioned there was USKA. Right. Uh, I know we were we were. I went to other dojos that weren't, but predominantly probably the USKA dojos. So a lot of the people that you you've mentioned and that were in the USKA, you know, after. Grandmaster Trius died, they all had their own organizations. And so it's it's completely split up. And, you know, some of them are still in communication and on good terms. Other ones aren't. You know, what was right. it about Trius that let him be the alpha male of all alpha males? What Was it that he, he was the first? You know, he was here first. He opened the first karate school in the U.S., Right. Or was it something about his personality? Was it his the way that he managed it? What was it that let him do this? I think it was a mixture of those things. You know, and I would say being first might have been a small part of it. Okay. But I think one of the things that allowed him to take the position that he took was the fact that he he basically developed a style, a system that was tough. And mm. you knew that his people were tough people. Mm. They trained hard. They trained well. They had, you know, good form. They hit hard. They kicked hard. You know, then <clears throat> you didn't question their abilities if they were, uh, uh, Tria's student. Mm. And a lot of the top competitors came from there. And a lot of the other top competitors went to him at times to train. They went to his dojo. Mm. That was another dojo I visited. But, right. you know, it's just uh, top people were coming out of him. You knew his people were tough. So I think that gave him a lot of credibility, too. Right. You weren't questioning are these people real? I mean, right. if you question that, it was, let's get on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> that, yeah. that was a sign of the times, too. You know, right. yeah. well, let's get out here on the floor. If you didn't respect them by the time you got off, you know, it's <clears throat> probably because you left early because they were whipping your butt. <laughs> you know, you, you brought up a good point about him developing a, a, a style or a system of of teaching you know because i look i you know i lived in okinawa i've traveled around a lot of different places in the u.s and overseas and you know like you also said earlier when you get there you're not always you're not doing things like they are they're stepping different or punching different but wherever i went i was able to hang in with these guys uh because of that foundation that I had of Shuriru. Right. Right. So, so when they would watch you and, uh, they would realize, you know, your technique was good. It was strong. And, and isn't that what most of us are really looking for? You know, right. it's, uh, you know, a, a good, tough karate guy, you know, and, and when you, I mean, I you hate to say this, but we've all met opposites of that. Yeah. Where you train with them for a half hour and feel like this is a waste of time. Right. But they, they're not. 
real good, and they're they're not developing the skills and the toughness that that it would take to become a a very strong karate guy. Mm. Let, let me ask. Let me ask you this. So you you also said, and I agree that that, that things are very different now, where it is it is divided up by style and by organization, and and people aren't willing to train or learn anything from somebody outside of this approved group that they're in. I don't like that. I I enjoy going other places and working out with other people and learning new things and seeing how it compares to what I know. You know, how do we start opening things back up again so that you can train with each other and get better by working out with each other? Or, or are those days just gone? Is it is it done? I oh, I haven't given that really any thought in the past, but uh, you know, I <clears throat> I think you would have to find areas that you can build that mutual respect on irregardless of what they call them, their style and stuff. You know, do more stuff to get people together. One of the things I've always felt was detrimental that has happened is, uh, and I've had this even happen in my own dojo, people that, what I call kingdom building. Mm. Somebody opens a dojo, they get it rolling, they got a bunch of students who uh, train with them, and uh, they uh, they they get to the point where that that structure means an awful lot to them. Mm-hmm. They got to be the top dog. They got to be the only dog. I consider it a flaw, mm. but I've seen that happen. Okay, and I think that adds to the division. You know, or somebody, you know, if you want to know anything, come and talk to me. You know, right? You know, and uh, well, this is again where Trius's organization was very different. When he would have the nationals every year, all those style heads would have a chance to teach mm. about their system. Uh, anybody practicing that system would attend, but also people that hadn't practiced that system would attend. Right. You know, you, yeah, if you had, you didn't have anything going on that hour and, you know, Bill Wallace was teaching a kicking seminar, you know, you went over there to pick this up, you know, because you sure. nobody knew how to kick like that guy. Sure. Or if Mr. Keeney was teaching his, his go-do stuff, you went and he taught me a lot, man. He taught me some jokes that were just super, hmm. that are just a little, little different, just a little twist on that that uh, increase their effectiveness tremendously. Hmm. But, uh, you know, this is this is a lot of the big difference. Now, could we get back to that point? I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. And it's for people younger than me to consider, and, you know, will they open themselves up? And uh, are they allowed to open themselves up without right. being... Yeah, without right. being, uh, you know, looked down upon from their own organization. I think there's another problem that, you know, some people that are open, the last thing they can do is go tell their leader, well, I went here and I picked this up from him. 
Right. Now you're, you're probably going to be told to disregard it. You know. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a different situation yeah. than when than uh, when James McLean picked up the phone and called uh, Mel Wise and said, "I'm sending a student to you." That's that's just yeah. not something that happens today, like it like it did in the late '60s. Well, you train in Okinawa, and I, I've heard that's fairly common over there. It is, yeah, and um, yeah, yeah, you know, it's so we were following more of the old Okinawan model than a lot of people are today you know that's yeah you know that sensei's would send people to uh, another well-known sensei go train there for a while yeah i I mean that's how i i I mean i started working out with um when i first got there the first karate i was doing was with a guy named katsuhiko shinzato and it was a a branch of the uh, matsubayashi shorinru so he branched off of the nagaminis right but then he started introducing me to other people. He introduced me to another Shore and Rue group and said, Nate, you should work out here and learn, you know, more about the original Okinawan karate. So I did. And that's how I got into that dojo. Yeah. And him and I went several other places together to watch and work out. And then I went other places with other people. It was it was much more open. Now, if I started doing something like bad mouthing other people or saying, oh, I'm not working out at this dojo because it's a bunch of shit, I'm working out at this dojo, there would have been a problem. But if I'm going there to learn and right. I'm respectful to everybody, right. it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, and your sensei didn't mind you adopt the good things that you learned. Right. You know, if you brought it back, you know, he was usually pretty interested in it. Right. You know, and, uh, you know, he wanted to see what you were doing now. And, uh, you know, and you, you might end up talking about it, but, you know, you would, uh, that was great and okay back in those days. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Yeah, the only, I, I don't want to say it was like, the only discussion that I had was there was one high-rank instructor at one dojo who didn't realize that I started, I first started with Shinzato. So I was working out at both dojos um, while I was there, different styles, and the one instructor comes up and says, Nate, when you this dojo, you work that style. When you Shinzato dojo, you work his style. Okay? Yeah. And I said, okay. You know, okay. Right. Yeah, you had no expectations of going there to do Shinzato's style. You, you wouldn't have learned anything. Right. You know, so right. You realize that. Yeah. Hey everyone, like the show? Enjoy hearing interviews with martial artists from around the world? Then share it with a friend, family member, co-worker, everyone at your dojo, your fellow karate cop. You can find new episodes every Sunday at choptalk.podbean.com. That's choptalk.podbean.com. And don't forget to like the show on Facebook. Thanks. You talked about the USKA providing, I don't know, uh, the standards or uh, rec- recognition. So, I, I mean, right. did, did they have a higher level of expectation of than the people who were not in that style or were just in independent dojos? 
definitely there was a big difference in the USKA. And especially that, that difference also came from who you had trained with in the past, which is part of this story. Uh, I had, when I first moved to Columbus, I was looking for a dojo. Mr. Simmons's dojo was 250 miles away. I guess 125 miles was my limit. But uh, So I was looking at local dojos in central Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I went to one dojo. I went several times. And, uh, you know, this is early 70. I got promoted, I think, in October of 69 to Shodan. So I'm a, I'm an early, still an early showdown at this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went, and I started questioning some of the things I was seeing. It just didn't seem like it was at the same standards and things. And I remember I saw some people get promoted one time, and there was no real testing or anything. This is since they had called them out and promoted them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, we always had to take tests at the dojos I belonged in, and you had to, you had to know certain material. Maybe another new kata. You had to demonstrate stuff at, right. at a higher level than you used to be. Right. So it was none of that. And I was going, well, one day I walk in, and uh, he had asked me, he had a tournament coming up, and he asked me if he could put a photograph of me on the uh, the flyer. And I said, yeah, sure. Hmm. You know, because I was going to compete in it. In fact, I think I won that one. But, yeah. But, uh, yeah. But anyway, it was uh, about that time that I really had started training with Mr. McLean. I was doing the drive up there because uh, I, I had some questions about their training and abilities. And, and uh, but he me in one night and told me, you know, that he was proud that I was at the dojo. He was proud to have me in his organization, which I'm thinking, I'm not in your organization. I'm a USKA guy. Right. But uh, he told me that he was promoting me to third degree black belt. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a short time of first degree. Right. And, you know, the first thoughts that went to my head was, uh, the two people I had trained under, Mr. Simmons and Mr. McLean. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about walking into Mr. McLean's dojo, telling him I'm third degree now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just jumped second, and I made third, and I did this here in a matter of a month. Wow. You know, you, you know I, I didn't have enough guts to do that. Right, right. Well, or, or with Mr. Simmons. You know, sure. They would have... Uh, just chastise me or maybe beat my butt for that. You know, it's, you know, you know, who do you think you are and why are you taking rank that you did nothing for? Right. You know, and just, you're a young show dog, you know, it's, this shows, you know, just how arrogant and ignorant you are that you would, I didn't want that. Right. No, not at all. Criticism. So I never went back to the guy's dojo after that. Sure. I was done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't want to have to explain to the people that meant a lot to me what, how I got to be a soft dog. No, no, definitely not. No, no, well, <laughs> no. Well, but, yeah, that's, and I, I think that was part of his organization building. 
methods. Mm-hmm. And you start to realize that's probably why you question a lot of the stuff you saw. Right. He was taking other people, giving them rank, and yeah, you know, and uh, to get them to join. And again, I think people are looking for some legitimacy. Right. And they think, well, now he's going to give me a certificate that says this, I have it. Put that on my wall, you know, and people won't question me. I'm not right. just dropped out of, yeah, dropped out of nowhere. I can show people I'm this degree and here's this, you know. But that's where, again, the USKA was different because you had the style pass. And when you were getting the promotion, your style head had to okay that. Mm-hmm. So, so, uh, so you, you had, didn't just have the piece of paper, you'd put in the work to earn it. Oh yeah. Yeah. You put in the work and you would test for it. And, uh, you know, there were definite qualification standards you had to meet mm-hmm. and you had to be able to perform them very well to get that next rank. And, and including time and grade, you had to have so much time before you could do that. Right. To even be considered for that rank. Right. And, uh, you know, with that in mind, you know, it's, it put a lot of, you know, I think Mr. Tree has had kind of a genius system going there, you know, that go back and, uh, honor your, they had to go back and get the style heads okay. You mm-hmm. had to be okay with that promotion. Right. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, probably normally, you know, if he knew your sensei well, he knew what you were going through to get there, so it would be okay. Sure. But there was some oversight. Yeah. yeah. There was oversight. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I just thought of something I haven't thought of in years, and that's, I was back home in Erie one time, and I was working out, and I was Mr. McLean's student then. Uh, and towards the end of that class, and Mr. Simmons, though, Joe, he called me up front. This is several years from the time I joined the patrol and stuff. And mm-hmm. He called me up in front and, uh, you know, just expressed to the class how proud he was that I had continued my training and, you know, and worked hard and, and continued learning and, and doing all the stuff that I had been doing. And uh, I think at that point I might have still been competing a little bit. And, you know, so he was proud of all that stuff. He promoted me to fourth dawn. Wow. But I remember after he promoted me, he took me aside and told me, Jim McLean has to okay this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, he said, you can let him know that you were promoted, and I am ready to sign in your promo- send in your promotion slips to Mr. Trias. If he has a problem with that, call me and let me know immediately. I will talk to him. But I feel that you deserve this promotion. Mm. And there was no problem with it. It went through okay. Sure. Of course. But, yeah, so there was that type of thing going on in the USKA, too, back then. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm taking the side, saying to me, Mr. McClain has to okay this or it can't go. Right. It wasn't for real. If he <laughs> Sure. No. Sure. And, of course, with Mr. McClain, you're really worried. <laughs> you know? Right. You know, what's he going to say? You know? 
But he tell you what he whatever, whatever he said he was it was what he was thinking because he wasn't going to pull any punches. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, that's the other thing. Yeah, if he didn't feel he should have been a fourth degree black belt, he just sat right there and told you, <laughs> right. "There's no way I'm signing off on this." You know, you've been slacking. You've been this. He, you know, he, he would be very straightforward <laughs> about it. Sure. But like I said, luckily there was. It went through, and you know, and I and I got certificates from Master Trias, and they were Mark Shoriru. <laughs> mm. So, so, you know. So I I know so, you've had um, you've had some some injuries lately, so you haven't been uh, working out as much as you have been before. But if anybody listens to this episode and, and wants to follow up and uh, contact you or has any other questions? Uh, is there a place we can they can get a hold of you? Is it is it Facebook or uh, or what would be the best way if someone yeah. wanted any other questions? Yeah, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook. They can find me there. They can call you. You're free to give my phone number to anybody that wants to call. Sure. Um, yeah, that would be fine with me too. Or they can get a hold of me on Facebook, and I'll be glad to glad to talk with anybody. You know that. So I'd be more than happy to at least chat with them. But, yeah, you're right. I haven't been working out. They discovered I have a, a broken vertebrae in my back. And Ooh. For some reason, I really broke it when I was young, and it's healed funny. But it, it decided to wait till I was about 70 to really start bugging me. But How did you break it? I'm not 100% sure, uh, but... I think I may know how, and I used to do real heavy squats, and uh, I, I did a lot of lifting. Okay. And uh, and uh, at the top of your squat, if you've ever done a squat, it's, it's sure easy to sort of do a little body maneuver that just sort of rattles the weights a little bit. Yeah, I've done that. It's a sound I think that most lifters like. Yeah. Uh, just makes a little clunking sound. You got all this weight up, and boom, you make a clunk sound, and then you put it back down, put it back on the rack. Well, this is the one thing I remember. I was squatting one time. I had a lot of weight on the bar. I know it was, you know, somewhere over 400 pounds I was squatting. And, and uh, after I did the squat, I did that. And I remember this old timer in the gym, and, he still looked good. He was built. And he walked over to me and he said, why do you do that at the top of your squat? And I said, I don't know. And he goes, no, you know why you do it. Well, I mean, you, you do a perfect squat. All your form is perfect. You grab the bar. You know, you you got great body dynamics. You're coming up strong. But why do you do that little jerk at the top? And I again, I told him, I don't know. He said, do it because you like that sound. <laughs> And I said, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, and you're going to break your back. He said, you're putting so much strain on your spine already, squatting the amount of weight you are, that mm. that jerk is probably has more potential to injure you than anything else you're doing here. Okay. you're doing everything else right. So, you know, he told me, you know, from that point on when you squat, don't do that little bounce at the top. Just get it up there and re-rack it. You don't have to. 
you don't have to make that little sound at the top. Well, I do remember that, so that's a possibility okay. there. Right. And again, I uh, think of the number of hard falls I've taken, you know, working out with people and sure. stuff. Sure. Oh, my could God. could happen on one of those at a different time. Right. You know, it might be something I don't even remember. You know, I know I've had spasms and stuff before, but now it's, uh, they come, I'm waiting to get this fixed after the coronavirus stuff is over. Yeah. They have a procedure we want to do. They We okay. were going to have it done by this time, but they had to delay it. Of course. Well, that's it. You'll get and that then back fixed. Out again. Yeah, I'll be back in action. Yeah. 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 I don't kick as high anymore, but I can still <laughs> lie about it. You know? <laughs> I can still tell you I'm going to kick in. Right. But, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to get back out there and work a bag and we'll try to get my forms back down where I would, at least where I feel satisfied with them for yeah. a 70-year-old guy. Yeah. Sure. Well, hey, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to talk with me. You got you had a real interesting karate career and it's great to hear about that and then the all the undercover work you did i mean it's really fascinating well thanks thanks someday when i'm in the cincinnati area down there we'll go out and have a beer and i'll i'll tell you a few more of those crazy undercover stories there's a ton of them (laughs) (laughs) i'd love i'd love to hear it yeah yeah but Anyway, that's that. I uh, appreciate uh, what you're doing. I, I've looked at several episodes of your, uh, your uh, is it a blog or is it, what do you call this? Podcast. A podcast. Podcast. Yeah, okay. I've looked at several episodes and always find them interesting. So. Oh, wow. Thank you. I'm glad you checked those out. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, I have over time. Thanks again to Don Sonny for joining us this week. I've posted a few photos of his karate career on the Chop Dog Facebook page. I've posted a few photos of his karate career on the Chop Dog Facebook page. Please take a look and hit the share button. If you have any other photos of him, you can add them in the comments section. Be sure, be sure to listen next week to hear about Mr. Sonny's law enforcement career, his first-hand views of the Kent State riots, which took place exactly 50 years ago today, and his unbelievable experiences as an undercover agent dealing with the real people depicted in the 2011 film Kill the Irishman. You can contact Don Sonny on Facebook, or you can reach out through the Chop Talk Facebook page, or send an email to choptalkwithnateengland at gmail.com, and I'll get you connected. If you like the show, please share it on Facebook, Twitter, and all of your social media sites. And wherever you listen, please write a review and give us a five-star rating. If you like the show, let everyone in your dojo know. Thanks for listening. Nihidibiru and mataya. Chop Talk is brought to you by the Kosho School of Karate's premium martial arts training equipment. Frustrated with the low quality of the big manufacturers? the hassle and expense of custom-made equipment, or the months-long delivery times offered by the Japanese brands, if your order ever arrives at all. Kosho offers Makiwara, iron sandals, specialty punching bags, and other premium martial arts training equipment, all at great prices and great delivery times. Kosho equipment is guaranteed to be high-quality and heavy-duty, 
exactly what serious traditional martial artists demand. Contact the Kosho School of Karate for more information. Go to www.koshoequip.com or email koshoschoolofkarate at gmail.com. Kosho, premium martial arts training equipment for the serious martial artist.